if you want something, do it. The, the, the sky is limitless, you know, and where you think is your limit, it's not your limit. You can do anything you want to do. You just have to have the inkling to find a dream and, and chase it. That's all. Welcome to the Mindset for Runners podcast, helping you to access and unlock your true potential as an athlete. Hey, it's Rob. Welcome to this very special episode, an interview with the one and only Marie Connor. This interview is a masterclass in how to continually understand yourself and evolve your mindset to reach your potential and then go beyond what you thought you were capable of. Marie helps us understand all of those things in this interview as she takes us through the incredible races and training that she's done in the past only five years since she started running ultra marathons. So since she ran her first ultra, which is the six foot track in 2019, her record is outstanding including first place Elephant Trail 100 Mile in 2020, uh, f- sixth place in her first Coaster Cozy in 2020 in very tough conditions in the heat, coming back the year later to win the Coaster Cozy and set a new inclement weather record. Uh, first place Brisbane Trail Ultra 100 Mile in 2021 in just a shade under 24 hours. Seventh female overall at Ultra Trail Australia, 100 kilometers. We're talking about world-class stuff here. Seventh female there in a time of 12 hours, 56, absolutely smoking. And then 2022, Southern Sydney Ultra, 24 hours, first place with a total of 211 kilometers in a very first 24-hour race, going back to win back-to-back at Brisbane Trail Ultra, 100 mile again. And of course, back-to-back Costa Kosciuszko champion in 2022, a time of 30 hours, 51 minutes. Then she ramped it up being selected to go to the toughest foot race in the world, the Badwater 135, which is a 135-mile ultramarathon across Death Valley. You wait till you hear the story that Marie tells about that. And of course, culminating in her selection in the Australian 24-hour team, which she will then be going to represent Australia in the World Champs in Taipei in a couple of weeks' time. Please take notes in this interview. You're going to learn so much that you can apply and relax and enjoy this wide-ranging, totally captivating interview with Marie Connor. Hey, I'm here. I'm so lucky to have Marie Connor join us on the podcast today. Marie, thank you so much for your precious, precious time. Awesome. Thanks, Rob, for having me, of course. Um, so let's get straight into it because uh, there's so much I want to cover. There, you are just, there's just so many things I want to ask you, so many places I want to go. So can we start with travel and the role that travel has played in your life and what it's given you? Um, yeah, I, I always wanted to travel and I, when I started nursing, my, the first thing I wanted to do was um, try and go somewhere every single year. And so I started doing that. And when I, that was in the early 2000s, I started and I went to Malaysia and then I went to Cambodia. But um, yeah, in, um, in 2008, I, like life was pretty, it changed a lot for me. I went from having a long-term partner that, you know, life was all settled and then all of a sudden found everything different. And I was like, right, what do I need to do? So I thought if I give up nursing and go and travel or get my overseas license to, to work overseas I'll go and do that and then I met Rob and so I never worked I just traveled and did nothing but you know we ended up traveling to Bar and uh, we just would 
we would pick a, a continent and then sort of plan a week in ahead. And it was very much not like me to be that spontaneous, but it was it was it was really good for me to be happy with being spontaneous because I saw so much and did so much, and I've like I feel like my whole world opened up from that. So my, my parents are both Australian, but my dad's side of the family are Dutch. So all of his side of the family, like they all live in Holland, and it was excellent getting over there and and meeting them and learning about that side of the family of culture as well, which is which is really good. I know where a lot of my traits come from. <laughs> to say that you've seen a lot, done a lot is an understatement because can you talk about the countries that you've visited and, and the length of time you were there? Oh, yeah. So, like, obviously, as I said before, I, I started travelling independently or, you know, by myself in the early 2000s and I did travel a lot by myself but um in that three years that I went traveling with Rob my he's now my husband of course 15 years now uh not married 15 years but together 15 years um we um did a lot of different continents so I've done all the way from um the bottom of South Africa up through all through Africa out of Ethiopia and up through the Middle East and out of Turkey and that took us just over nine months um and then um we've also done Europe, so um, hired a car and drove all the way through Europe, all the way down to the, you know, Italy has the boot and then, you know, we drove down to the very bottom of that and then went to Sicily and then across on the ferry over to Dubrovnik and in Croatia and then drove up all that side and back to Holland uh, into the UK. I, I also did France and Spain and everything over there. Um, and then what else have we done? Oh, Central and South America. So we flew into... We flew into Mexico City and then travelled north and spent six weeks learning Spanish at a Spanish school in a small town um, so that we could then travel all the way down. So we went from almost just near the border to America and travelled for nine months down to the to the bottom of Chile. So, yeah, I still have heaps of countries to go. And then in 2013 we went to Nepal and hiked up to Everest Base Camp and and um, also the Annapurna uh, Sanctuary. So that was pretty good. Um, yeah, and then since then, I've done also a lot of all the way through New Zealand, top and bottom. Yeah, you, uh, yeah, heaps of places. Uh, I, I've out of, I think I've done 74 countries now. Oh, and then if you count the states, because I just went across to the states, even though I only went to one small part of it, I have to add that too now. So I think it's like 75 countries now out of 195. So. I'm going to rack them all up because I'm off to Taiwan too in two weeks too. So there's another. We'll get to that later in the interview. But you mentioned before that you you would be more, as you would describe, like a controlled person who is planned and, and likes everything in there in all the ducks to be lined up. But then this travel was really spontaneous. How did how did you kind of deal with that and did it open up a side of you to to help you grow? Um. Yeah, very type A generally. And as I said, I think that comes from my family, my upbringing, my dad. Um, we're all a little bit like that. <laughs> um, I've got lots of sisters and a brother. Um, and then, yeah, I I forgot to mention before too, we worked in the Solomon Islands. And sometimes, so we did that for nine months. I'm a nurse, my husband's a paramedic. And sometimes you can't control everything. And I had to, it, it's about, I guess I either would, flourish in a situation or not and sometimes you have to go through not flourishing in a situation to understand that there's more than one way to skin a cat and so for me you know I would always 
all my early travel was very structured and very, you know, I knew exactly what I was going to do, where I was going, where I was staying, and everything was sort of lined up before I left. And then by the time I started traveling in 2008 with Rob, it, you know, I, we had the bones of it organized, but the rest wasn't. And actually, it didn't bother me. It was really interesting. It's, it's such a growth to be able to be like that. I'm a lot more. I'm a lot more flexible and can jump between the two these days, whereas, yes, I never, ever could before. I think I had quite a very, um, I was a little bit obsessive-compulsive, more compulsive than obsessive, but, like, even to go to school, I would, I, this this is probably too much. See, I told you I talk too much, Rob. Um, yeah. I, I would get up, I would set myself the night before, what I had to do, the steps before I had to leave to school to arrive at a certain time, and then I would type back all the times, four minutes to do this, three minutes to do that. Okay, so then I'd have to put my alarm on at that time. And then there was no room for error. I was, you know, you would get up, you would do this, you would do that, make the bed, get dressed, leave at that exact time. And I couldn't I couldn't handle being outside of that structure and when I realized that I was very like that maybe it was through nursing and learning and and you know learning about mental health and and other things within specialties in nursing I realized that oh I probably need to push myself outside that so I would I would then go all right today I'm not going to make the bed and I would struggle with that really I would struggle really bad don't make the bed and then I was so now now I purposely don't make the bed a couple of times a week and it has to be a random day so it's kind of structured unstructured but it's how I get away with knowing that I can, I am in control or I have the power to let things go if I want so I it's like I I'm still controlling there you go I'm still no, it's really That's good it. it's really good tell me how that helps you prepare for races and in races um interestingly enough you know things don't go to plan in races you can you can plan for everything or have an idea of everything that's going to happen but things don't always happen you know I guess I guess a long way round because a lot of my learning is a long way round and it's taken a couple of years to get to them and I don't articulate myself very well generally I have a lot of processes in place um, and it's not until someone will you know, ask me or talk about it. And then five minutes later, I'll say, oh, I probably could have answered that in one sentence. So um, I think it does help because in my mind, say you pick a race like Costa Cozy, so many things can go wrong in that race. And while I'm going through my training for that race, uh, I my mind just thinks, okay, so if it's raining, what am I going to do? Or if, if this happens, what am I going to do? So it's almost like I've pre-prepared myself for a bunch of things that may, will probably go wrong. So, so that my reaction is less when it happens, maybe is, you know, or so that I don't, so when it does go wrong, I can go, oh, so I already know this was going to happen. So that's okay. I guess that's how it helps me. It's, it's funny as you, as you're talking about that preparation in 2021, Costa Cozy, you ran past me wearing a shower cap. <laughs> do you remember that you know yeah because in, I, I thought about it and I was like my, the trouble with me is that I get really cold and I thought what stops me from getting cold so you know during my training I'm thinking along and it's raining and it's cold and, I, and we were training through winter coming into the summer for that race and you know it's a wet year and what keeps me warmer oh so I wear a hat that keeps my head warm if my head's warm my body's warm so if I wear gloves and a hat but then it was pouring rain I was like well how do I keep my hat dry to keep my head warm so shower cap I don't know that's ridiculous because the year before 
it was a hot year at 40 degrees the year before. So I decided to wear my husband's bee hat to get the flies off my face. So I just come up with random strategies. I don't always look great, but I don't care what I look like. <laughs> I'm just there to run. I hope everyone's listening to this because the way that you deal with potential issues in advance, it's called front loading in mental skills training, is really something people can take away from this already. Now, awesome. yeah, in we have shared a few miles on the road. And when we did in last year's Coast to Cozy, you told me about a back injury that you had mm. had that I'd never, I, I was quite in shock when you told me the depth of it and how much it impacted your life. Are you okay to tell the story of that? Yeah, yes, I am. Yeah, it was a terrible time. And actually, I, th I thought about it today in my run. I think about it quite often because when I, so I'll just say that even today I didn't actually feel like running. And when I don't feel like running, I think to myself, what does pre-back surgery me think about running? And all I wanted to do when I couldn't run was run. So on the days that I lack motivation to go, I just remember how how I felt when I couldn't do it. And you know what? It gets me out the door every single time and then the run always is better, so it's fine. But, you know. Um, that, before I, you go on, Marie, is it, is, it, is it the gratitude that you can run or is it is it something else? Yeah, it, it is. It's definitely gratitude. It's oh. I, my body has, my body can do that now and I, and I could not do that now. I've always been active and, and, and able to move and able to do things. And I used to always say that like moving, movement clears the active mind or, you know, like it settles me down or it, it makes me a better person. That's what I've always said. But, but what I didn't realise um, is it gives me time to be less reactive and it gives me time to myself and it gives me space and that's why it makes me a better person. So wow. I wasn't ever really able to articulate that, but that's why I'm, that's why I like doing it. So when I was stuck with an injured body that couldn't move and couldn't do anything, you know, so my brain was frustrated and I was frustrated and I took that out on absolutely everybody else and it was nobody else's problem but my own. But it's because I couldn't, I had no outlet, but I couldn't understand why I needed an outlet at the time. So there's, you know, it's a lot of growth mentally and physically since that time. But there was no particular injury but like as such. It was, it was obviously just a, a, a like a, a degeneration of, of, you know, my physical ability perhaps um, and nothing really made it happen. But spontaneously it was after hiking the Three Capes track in, uh, in Tassie with, with Rob and driving home from Melbourne after we picked the children up. And, and when we got home I struggled to get out of the car and I had, you know, I thought it was sciatic pain and I was just like, oh, gosh, what's all this? You know, and it was probably 20 years of working as a nurse. I don't know. I'm pretty careful generally and I've always been active but not not anywhere extreme. So I sort of had this pain and it got, it, it was so bad to the point where I just, I, the pain was so bad that it made me a bad person because I was, as I said, I was so frustrated and angry about everything because I couldn't do anything. And, yeah, it was like a chronic, it was really bad. And this, you know, it was it was the worst time of my life. And if you want to know what rock bottom is, you should have seen me in that time. That was, you know, I would and I was telling someone the other day I used to wear jeans to bed so that I could put my hands through the belt holes to to roll myself over because I couldn't roll over in bed. And I had a one year old at the time and couldn't get her out of the cot. And, you know, you can imagine picture a mother standing by the cot with a with a crying baby. I was just 
crying because I couldn't pick her up because of the pain. And, you know, so it's just a, you can just imagine this horrible scene of everybody crying and Rob was at work and I'm at home by myself and I can't pick up a baby. And so I feel useless and hopeless. And yeah, it was just very bad time. Anyway, six months, six months worth of, you know, trying everything that I could think of. Um, I put my, my nursing hat on and, went to um, tried everything Western and Eastern medicine could provide until I finally um, uh, went to a surgeon and he said, you need spinal surgery. I've got nothing else to offer you. And so it took me a bit to come to terms with doing that because I didn't really want to do that. And eventually I did that. So he cut in through the, in through my stomach actually. So an anterior rather than through the back because it was on the, in, it was from that side. So I've got a good scar and, um, everyone always says, oh, I didn't realize he had a Caesar. I was like, I didn't, but that's what it's a, it's a pretty big scar on my tummy. Um, and it goes in through and yeah, I think it was a seven or eight hour surgery. I was like, well, apparently that's how long it takes. I don't remember any of it, which is good. Um, and, uh, yeah, within 10 days of that, um, I remember lying in the bed and thinking, I think this has worked because I remember rolling over and I was like, I was so ginger and careful because I was like, don't move anything, don't break anything, don't do not do anything. And Rob was excellent. He just let me just lie around for 10 days. And at, on the 10th day, I remember sitting up in bed and I was like, holy dooly, oh, my gosh, I got my life back. I, can, I just sat out of bed and it was, I remember, I just remember I had this big smile on my face and I came up and I was like, guys, oh, I'm, this is it, I'm ready. And the doctor said to me, whatever you do, don't do anything silly. So I'm really careful not to do anything, but I remember tapping my fingers and I was like, I am, I'm ready and I need to, I'm going to use this body. I'm get, I've got a second chance at life. So Amazing. here I am. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to unpack the rest of that. But just before we do, was it spinal fusion? Is that correct? Yes. So my L1S5, um, it's fused together. Um, so I, I got a bone graft put in. It's just over a centimetre big. Um, and so I'm a bit taller now, so I stand taller. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, I haven't had a drama since, which is fantastic. Unbelievable. Can you, so what happened next? Uh, yeah, it, I I always wanted to run a marathon, a sub four marathon, and I did try training for a marathon um, before, like earlier on, a couple of years earlier, and then found I got pregnant. It was like I found out I was pregnant, so I, I sort of was very careful when I did that. And I did a Melbourne marathon, and it was like four over four and a half hours or something because I had to walk in. Like I, anyway, whatever. You, you, when you're pregnant, you're just mindful that there's two of you and mm. you don't do anything silly. So I always wanted to just run a sub four marathon because I thought that was, you know, the highlight of life. Um, and um, yeah, on the 1st of January, I was like, well, so I had my surgery in the September and um, I was very careful and good for that few months. And the 1st of January, I said to my husband, let's take the pram and the, and the kids and let's go down the park. And if I can do 5Ks in under 30 minutes, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, train for this marathon that I said I was going to train for. And I did. Um, and the, and the best part of that story is my average heart rate was like 200. Uh, I was <laughs> red in the face I was huffing huffing like you wouldn't believe but I think I got 29.59 and I remember looking I think it's still on my Strava right back when and I was just like believable back you know <laughs> unbelievable that's three months so I, or 12 weeks after surgery about or? yeah yep wow yep what a story but like I said within 10 days I knew yeah. and he said to me the doctor said to me you know just be mindful for this first couple of weeks no no running for a couple of weeks and when I went back about my checkup 
like I wasn't a runner at that stage anyway, but he just said, no, I remember saying to him, what if I try and do some running or do something? And, and he was like, oh, I'd prefer you not to do much. So I ended up just doing yoga five times a week. And that was really calming for me too, considering as I was saying to you how um, angry and frustrated I was before the surgery anyway. So that was probably very beneficial for me from a mental point of view in the sense of it, it gave me a place of gratitude. It gave me somewhere to come from, which was, well, now you have this, what are you going to do with it? Or, you know, so how frustration got you nowhere, stop, you know, think about something different or, or change the way you think about this. Yeah. Reframe it all. Yeah. Beautiful. So first of January, you, you do your 29, 59, 5k around the park, and then you set this, set the goal for the marathon. Yep. So I did, I mean, by the October of that year, of a nice, long, slow year, I ran a 3.56 or something down in Melbourne again. So that was great. Oh, that yeah. still hurt. That was really hard. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. Okay. And then after that marathon, how does the journey continue? Yeah, funnily enough, Rob said to me, oh, well, you've done your marathon. Let's go. There's some really great trails locally here. So we have access to them on our doorstep in Newcastle. It's just a beautiful place. And there's a place called Glen Rock and you can you can weave around all the trails in there. I can get a 30 or 40 or 50K run in there if I need to. It's right in the middle of suburbia and it just it's on backs onto the beach and you know it's amazing. Um and he's like, Oh, I'll come into the bush. And I was like, No way, I will get my shoes dirty, my road shoes. I remember it because I can't, I just can't believe that I said that. I can't believe that was how I used to think about it. And he was like, No, you should come into the bush. Anyway, we did. I, I went with him. It was, you know, 10 or 8Ks or something. It wasn't anything too hectic. And I was like, wow, this is this is two things I love because, as I said, we did the six-foot track. We've done the overland track. You know, I want to hike all these ones in, in New Zealand and we did Annapurna and, you know, we, uh, we loved long hiking and just getting out there and being self-sufficient and things like that. So going trail running, I was like, oh, a bit of running and a bit of, hiking in the bush these are my two favorite things and I didn't realize it so I thought well what can I do next so I applied for six foot track who wouldn't <laughs> so you go okay so then you step up I hope everyone listening is thinking wow I wonder if I can do that as well because this is yeah this is everyone thing. can do whatever they want oh that's fantastic take that lesson so then six foot track so that would have been in March which year are we talking about now 2019, my yeah. first trail run, my first ultra. Well, anything over a marathon is an ultra, isn't it? Yeah, so 2019. How'd that go? Um, I finished it. It was good. <laughs> it was really hard, actually. Track. But, and, and so naive, I, you know, I went into that just thinking, oh, how hard can it be? It's just, well, I didn't go to race it, of course. I just went to, to do it and enjoy myself, but it was hard. But hard things are great gee they make you feel good because you get to the end and you go you know what I just did this amazing thing I'm we my husband loaded us like we had to get back to the kids so he drove down drove me down and drove me back home and I didn't even take my shoes off at the end of the race we got in the car and we left and drove home and I didn't take my shoes off until I got back home to Newcastle from the race but I you know it gave me time to stiffen up first but made me realize wow that you know what can I do next or what do I want to do next? Because that was pretty fun and pretty amazing. So, And that question, you just ask yourself, what can I do next? I'm, I'm wondering how often you ask yourself that throughout, not just running, but life. It's a terrible theme. Um, I ask it all the time. It's like, where, where's the limit? What can I push? And unfortunately for me, limit is I have two small children. 
I work almost full time. I run a household. I'm a mother. You know, I've got all of these limitations. So those are what those are things that I don't necessarily want to change. So when I ask myself those questions, it's about where's what can I do within the constraints of those things. You know, so training a little more or running a, a longer race or trying to tie in a family holiday with a with a race. I get in trouble a little bit. I, I do get a hundred percent support in everything that I do, but I do get I do get asked the question, oh, can't we just go on holidays without it being about you running and then not? <laughs> it's it's lovely to hear how your values are so clear and, and how you don't want to compromise one value uh, too much with with another. But um, it's, it's a, lot, a lot of runners have that same kind of, you know, when you're talking about getting in the car after six foot track to go back to get your girls. How old were your girls? Oh, at, at yeah. two and three. Two and three. Yeah, and you managed to recover from spinal surgery, have a full-time job and do all of those things and train and finish your first ultra. Yeah, I did a lot of, yes. And yes, sorry. I'm trying to be more aware of celebrating things like that for myself because I find I get to the end of something or I hear you say that and that is a remarkable thing and I brush over it and I look for something else and I'm trying to be more aware of celebrating things like that and yes it was really difficult and but also extremely rewarding which is why I do it um you know a lot of the training is done pushing children in prams round and round or you know doing things or you know it's like now my timetable revolves around school drop-off and school pickup so I drop the children I do my run I come home I shower and I pick them up that's that's how I train I never train the weekends you know it's always only Monday to Friday and I want to make sure I I want my family to know they are the priority but running is very close (laughs) (laughs) very close I love it big smile on your face as you say it Marie there's so many of your races that we can talk about um Brisbane Trail Ultra two first place Mm. Costa Cozzi three-time finisher two-time winner including setting a new uh, record for the inclement weather um mm-hmm. southern city ultra i mean ultra trail australia where that was your first 100k and then you came back a few years later and absolutely smoked it finishing seventh over you know seventh um place and a sub 13 hour finish there um we haven't even mentioned the big ones which i really want to get to next before we get to bad water and representing australia can you tell us Take us to a couple of those races and some special moments that made made them special for you. Um, I, I, I don't like racing. I like the process of the training, to be honest. It's, it's why I only race twice a year, more or less, um, and I know it's beneficial for people to race a lot more than that. Um, but... Well, like I don't have the time to do it, but I, I just love the training and, and feeling what the training does for me. Brisbane Trail Ultra, I found it because um, it's, a, it's a really difficult 100-mile race and there's um, almost 9,000 metres of elevation. So in my mind, I was like, far out, that is stinking hard. I need to have a go and see what happens. And then when I reached, and I, I grew up in Brisbane as well, so it was really nice to kind of be able to go home and my my sister helped crew for me and my dad was there and he helped look after the children. So it was really, and my mum, you know, so it was really nice kind of 
brought the family into it, which is which is lovely. Um, but I I didn't grow up in the area where that race is, but I I know a lot of the places, which was really good. And then doing that run, um, yep. You asked what you know, going back to fun things of that that race was really difficult, and I think having only like hadn't done a lot of long stuff before that or hadn't done a lot of you know you've got you get to this point in a race where it turns it it not doesn't turn bad but it turns difficult and it's how you respond to that or how you perceive that I guess to and and it's coming out the other side of a difficult time which is what makes me then that's what gives me wings, to be honest. So I used to, like, I, I used to look at a race and think, oh gosh, it's going to get difficult or it's going to get really difficult. And now I think I sometimes I get impatient to get to the difficult spot because I know how good it feels to come out the other side. And no, you don't really know that feeling until you go there and you do that thing where you have to go through that really difficult thing and come out the other side and it's it's like a rebirth in a like that sounds ridiculous but it's like you come out and you go oh I can do this uh that was amazing I can't believe that I pushed through that or improved my limit of what I thought I could achieve or you know and breaking the course record in Brisbane that first year I knocked only five hours off that course record that was not my intention my intention at that race I don't I try not to compare myself with anybody else or think about anybody else because that that makes me really unhappy because as soon as I do that, I can find a thousand flaws of why I'm not better than somebody else or why this person's amazing and I'm nowhere near them or this or that. Whereas when I compare myself with what I think I can do or what I did there last time or what you know how I can change this for myself, I feel very confident doing like comparing myself to myself. And so I went in there going, well, I'm racing 10 or so other women. There's 50 of us in the race. What can I do is is do the best that I can at the time. And if that brings me fruit at the end, then that's what happens. And that's what did happen. You know, I absolutely blitzed that race, but I had a ball doing it. And I run most of the time with a smile on my face, except for in those really tough bits when you go, yeah, this is really this is really bad and I don't I don't know why I'm here right now and then some little input comes in and says you love this you love this and I go yeah actually I really do so God, that's a, that's a beautiful little story can you can you take us to a specific tough moment in a race where it, it has been tough and you have had that input and then you've had that rebirth as you say well um my work for me at the moment is trying to get that input to come from myself which it, it most of the time does, but when I get really tired, I lose a little bit of focus. At Costa Cozzi, so my sister and my friend have crewed me three times now. Uh, you know them well because they're very noisy. Um, but my sister, very similar to me in the sense, obviously growing up the same way I did and, you know, our, our parents pushed us. We There was five of us. My mum and dad were 22 and 24, so they we didn't have a lot of money. Um, and they, what they taught us was you go after what you want and you, you know, if you work really hard, you should be able to get what you want. And so she doesn't, she does not enable me or any of my crap at all. And so when I say, this is really, really bad, she says, no, it's not, it's fantastic. And so, and she'll keep saying that over and over until I believe her because she says it with strong conviction, like I would when I'm not tired and I believe her. And then off I go again, last year at Costa Cozzi, 
it was just coming up before dawn. I'd run pretty well. I was having a lot of nutrition troubles from about the 15, 16 hours onwards. And it was just before dawn and I was getting a bit tired. And unfortunately, the crew car pushed on. Um, I said, you know, I said, like, come closer to me at this point because I knew I was starting to lose a little bit of focus. Um, and they drove on probably double where I wanted them to. And so all of a sudden my I just deteriorated into this really negative, cranky, I was like stomping my feet, you wait till I see them and my gait shortened and I can't believe they are leaving me here. And then I started crying. So I was like, I'm here all alone in the middle of, you know, heading towards Perisher and it was really horrible and freezing and I didn't have a gloves and whatever. Like I just, it went, it was like totally imploding on myself. And as I saw that car up there, I, I was like, you wait till I get up there. And I got up there and and I, I, I sort of out loud, I was like, how, how could you leave me? I've had no food now for an hour. And these are all the things that I need. And my, my friend Alexa walked out of the car and she came over to me and she just put her hands on my shoulder and she goes, I'm so sorry. We will not do that again. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. Oh, okay, thanks. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Love you heaps. Took my nutrition and walked off. I was like, thank you so much again. Sorry about that. It was really interesting how I like she it just stopped and changed everything it was it was really really bad <laughs> I remember thinking bad for that that 20 minutes waiting to come across the car and it was and it was you know in, in an instance it was turned around which is really good maybe says a little bit about me but um I'm what I'm what I want to do is to be able to stop that before I get to that point or have a trigger that I can pull myself out rather than relying on somebody else so interesting it's a beautiful story of how quickly you can change your mindset uh given the right input as you said yeah 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 um great story um based on that are you aware of your inner critic or negative self-talk yeah i i think i'm a bit of a perfectionist so it can be it can be positive and it can be negative um i like as in like I, I know I want it. I try to quietly achieve the things. I'm not someone who puts out my goals to the universe and I'm not someone who, you know, posts a lot on social media and I kind of just dig in and do the work at home and, and get things done. And my results speak for the dedication that I have in my training, I guess. And that's why I've come from nowhere. Nobody really knows who I am and who's this person, you know, in, in four years turning up onto the world stage, which is amazing. Um, but um, that's all just, you know, hard work that I'm putting in myself. But that is, you know, fear of judgment and, and all of these other things, I guess. So that's the negative side of it. The positive side of it is, you know, when it is um, a hard day and I've had a hard day at work and I don't want to train, the perfectionist in me says, well, you know what, you don't miss a day because this is what the plan says, so go and do the plan. Or So it has allowed me to be consistent and have dedication when motivation is not there. So I I'm aware of it. I don't mind that it's there, but, you know, I, yeah, I can, I can sort of try to control it because I think I'm in control of all of these things. Sometimes I'm not. Like I said, I lose a lot of this focus and rationality when I get tired. Like in the middle of a race, it's very difficult to, to think this way. But as a whole, I generally am pretty well aware of myself, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful to hear you own uh, and how it can be both sides of the coin because that's exactly exactly we're all 
we're all shadow and light we're all positive and negative and if you can start to learn how to use it then or well, as you do it's uh, amazing i'm super I have a lot of, a lot to go, Rob. i've got lots of learning to do so. <laughs> we all do that's why you're such a champion because you you admit that i listen to one of your podcasts building confidence the first one and you were even just talking about the power pose or you know i can't, I can't remember something like that and i remember thinking see i do that it's really interesting uh, you know, if I'm if I'm getting a bit losing a bit of my focus while I'm running or I'm doing something, I I, I think I did it either with you or you may have seen me when you were 100 meters behind me at Coast of Cozy before you went round me. Um, but you know, I was running, I'd be running along and then I'd just drop my it's oh, like yeah. the super, drop my hands out and I just every time I do that while I'm running, I just get a full all over goosebumps. It's like it drops my shoulders, arms out. I put my chin up for a second. I take a good big breath and have a sigh, and it's like a, it's like a, I'm opening myself to the universe, or you know whatever it is, or I'm you know the Superman pose. I don't know you know whatever it's called, but I I've done that in I've done that before when I'm going around the track in Canberra, going around the track in Sydney. Sometimes just doing that, changing everything, it just stops the body and goes, oh, where are you? What are you doing? Refocus. I don't know. You know, such a great I, I example. Yeah. Sure. I remember listening to that in your podcast and I was like, oh, yeah, see, I do that. You can you can learn so many little tips and tricks if you're willing to be able to be open. And my favourite thing is if if um, nothing changes, if nothing changes, mm. you know, so if you, if you want the same outcome all the time, it's actually why I eventually had my spinal surgery years ago because, Rob, I was whinging about it, oh, this pain, it's terrible and I can't do anything and bloody hell this and that and everything. And I remember my Rob said to me, because he's so pragmatic, which is kind of annoying half the time but also good, he said to me, I don't want to hear about it unless you're going to do something about it. So if you're going to do something about it, I will empathise with you and I will, you know, stroke your shoulder and say there, there, okay, let's do this. But he said, if you're going to do nothing about it, but sit here and whinge to me about it, I don't want to hear about it. So when your only person who listens to you talk rubbish doesn't enable your, your, your crap, I guess you've got to do something about it. So he's a tough teacher. <laughs> I, I love that story. That's, a, that's such a good story. Um, I always love stories like that. <laughs> but, but I guess they, they are the nuts and bolts of why I I do and think the way I do sometimes because nobody enables my excuses. So I, I just have to dig deep and knuckle down and, and get on with it, I guess. I think it's part of knowing yourself as well. And he knows you so well. And my experience um, with your crew at Coast of Cozy, your crew is the funnest crew on the course. Like, die, just every time I would run past the car, it would, it's like, it's like she'd see me for the first time. Like, no! She's just that kind of infectious attitude. But she's also the velvet sledgehammer. She wouldn't let you get away with anything. She would tell it like oh, it is. And, she, and she's got that beautiful balance, which is so good uh, for you. in. Old and you've got to know when you use that too, you know, you've got to know when you need a little bit of love and when you need a little bit of empathy, but also when you need someone not to enable your excuses. And, and she was always giving me updates on you and your crew because as I, I think I mentioned to you last year or sometime, your crew were... The second best because I always will rate my crew first, but your crew were pretty damn good too. So, you know, same idea. They did the same to me what Di was doing to you. So it was really good. Unreal. Great memories for me, great memories. Now, you just mentioned two track races, Southern Sydney 24 and um, there's the Street Chimnoy 48-hour, which you did the 24-hour. Um, first time you'd stepped onto the athletics track. Um, 
can you tell us about either or both of those races and also um, where they've taken you now? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't really know why I did that. Uh, I don't. I, I was actually. I remember just looking at the aura calendar, thinking, "Oh, what's next? What's local? What can I achieve without being away from the family too long?" Or you know, because I, as you see, my racing history is not great. Like it's not vast because it's you know it's where I can get babysitting for the children or how I can convince Rob to stay home with the kids so I can go and do stuff. That's why it's all fairly local. Um, and Coast to has been a big one a few times to go and I think because I get the buy-in from my sister and my friend coming and he doesn't have to come, that's why I've been allowed to do that. Um, so the the first one being in, in Sydney was just because it was an hour, you know, two hours down the road, so I was able to talk my same crew into coming with me and just sitting trackside knowing they didn't have to drive so I sold it to them as being easier than doing coast to cozy because they could sit there and do whatever they want and just you know and and so we ended up doing that but at the time I didn't understand what a 24 hour was I thought it was just you know go have a bit of fun on 24 hours I didn't understand any of the qualifying stuff I didn't understand the premise of the race is to run as far as you can in the time frame and I went down there, I set my sights on running 200 kilometres because I thought that was really reasonable but also outside my scope, um, having never, you know, done something at that, you know, and, and also never, never, I'd never even been on athletics track. Even as a kid, I grew up in Townsville, we had grass tracks, we didn't have athletics tracks and as an adult, you know, I've never, I'd, I'm, not, I'm not an athletics person, I'm not a sprinter, I've, you know, I've never done anything like that, so feeling the turf for the first time was when I started the race, which is really, really kind of cool as well. Um, and that, so that's what made me choose that and why I decided to do that. I, yeah. And I, I surprised myself because running 2.11 at my very first 24 hour, um, John Pearson, you might know, John was on the course doing the 48 hour at the time and he was, it was coming up to the 23rd hour and I was sort of walking, he was jog walking he, you know, he was at the 42-hour mark of his long race. He had a couple of days and he was tired. But we got chatting because we we met each other at Coast to Cozy as well. And so, you know, there's always that family connection or history. And he said, you should not be walking with me. You should be running. And I said, but what do you mean? I've, I hit 200. That's what I came for. I wanted to be 200 Ks. And he said, yeah, but the idea is to get as further as you can. And I, I didn't really know what he meant. I didn't really think about it. But I finished the race. Um beautifully in first place by, you know, 15, 15 kilometres or something and taking out the Aura, Aura Champion of the Year, which was lovely and very awesome. Um, and it was after that that I did a little bit of research into what he had said to me to say. And I thought, oh, so the idea is actually run further than that or, you know, to to do whatever. So I ended up picking up a B qualifier for the national team at that race because that's over 200 Ks. Um which I also didn't know what any of that meant at the time. So that was in 2022. So having then done a little bit of research about that, I thought, oh, well, maybe I should have another go and see if I can either beat myself or do better than that or actually if I, I know that I walked for the last couple of hours, you know, there is capacity in there for me to be better for myself. What, what can I do? So, I, you know, as with everything, I analyse what I can do and what's controllable from my point of view and what I can change and what I can fix because a lot of things are not controllable and if you if you give them space and time, they will take over your entire brain, you know, like the weather. You know, I, I can't control the weather. I don't let it bother me, so I just come up with a strategy of how I can 
you know, mentally get through that or whatever. So if it's hot or it's cold, whatever. Um, and so I thought, well, I walked for the last couple of hours. I should at least be able to do, you know, 215 or 220. So I did, I went down to Canberra with the plan to try and do better. Um, and I, my crew couldn't come with me this time, unfortunately. And so, um, and that was my undoing this time is that, you know, I had one friend with me and uh, I said to her, go to sleep between 12 a.m. and 6 a.m. because I'll just, you know, um, I can manage it myself, which of course I could not manage it myself. And I came out with only being one kilometre better in the qualifier. But so I, I know there's capacity for me to do better because I can see the bits that are in my control to do better at. But, you know, every race day is different. And I still won that race as well, if that's, you know, what the outcome, I don't focus on outcomes or, you know, I choose a goal to give me something that's outside my scope. So I've always got something to strive for because I I do better with a something to look or, you know, something to give me perspective perhaps. Um, but really the process is where I thrive. I just love training. I, I would be happy if I never raced again and if someone just kept moving my benchmark, you know, and I, and said, you have to train for this race this year, oh, that got cancelled, we'll train for it next year. I guess I probably would never be unhappy if that ever happened to me because I don't necessarily love racing anyway. So, yeah. So, Is so that enough? It's, no, it's beautiful because... This, this goal setting, some people get caught up with having to set an outcome goal, which is, to, you know, a performance goal or, or a time or a place or something. But to hear you so intrinsically motivated and to be able to articulate and not judge yourself and go with it, that, that's really, really key part of knowing yourself. Yeah, I think I do like to, if I'm going to do something, I do set myself ABC goals for what I want to attain during that race or in that event um unfortunately i'm very easily read, uh, distracted and renegotiate with myself when it gets into those tough times um and until you get past them and you go oh no i'm going back for that a or i'm going back for that b goal or you know whatever so and then i push myself again but if, if someone enables me and allows me to drop down to my b or c goal that's you know that's but yeah I can, i'm not blaming anybody else it's all comes from me i I'm, i set the limits i you know i, I make the plans um, but yeah, I, you know, I always have, I like to have a good outcome. So I will always try harder and I will always push myself. Like I, I do believe we are capable of a lot more than what we give ourselves. You know, like if you asked me six years ago, did I think I would be doing something like this? The answer is definitely no. You know, I was a month post back surgery this time six years ago, and there is absolutely no way in heck that I thought that I would be running 150 Ks a week and doing it all with a heart rate under 130 like there's not a chance that that i thought i would be here yeah it's such an amazing story Marie. i have to take you to um the results of those two track races you achieved a lifelong dream of yours which is to be selected to represent your country can you tell us about that dream and, and what it means to you to be taking uh, an australian jersey in two weeks time in taipei Yes, absolutely. And so, uh, and I'm pretty sure you're aware now that I've not always been a runner and, I've, and I sort of came, fell into running um, just trying to, you know, hit a random goal of a sub four-hour marathon. Someone someone mentioned it once, it would be something good to do, and I thought I'd try it. So it was not running. I, I grew up with swimming and swimming training and um, I was not the best swimmer, but I was, I was very, my, I was very good at it. I think, um, but it's been a long time since I've done it, so I, I can't say that anymore. But 
I grew up in the era of Kieran Perkins and his 1500 meter world record and swimming and him winning at the Olympics in uh, in Atlanta at, in 1996. And that was the pinnacle of his career. And I was just finishing high school. And I remember watching that race, you know, on the edge of my seat and following his career from the early 90s through to 1996. And, oh, he was not that much older than me. Like he was only five or six years older than me, but I couldn't believe what he was achieving by putting in this work and doing all these things. And I remember saying to my parents, I'm gonna, I'm gonna represent my country swimming one day. And they're like, sure, whatever you say. That, you know, they didn't, they didn't say you have to be really good at that. But that my dad was like, that's fine, you know, I'll sign you up to swimming, whatever you want to do. So I trained morning and night for a little while. I got very distracted and I finished, you know, I didn't continue and everything else that happens in the teen years you know but I, I just remember it was a really big part of my life and my dreams and I I remember them buying me um, Australia swimmers speedo Australian swimmers and I used to wear them at the pool thinking this was you know, I was an amazing swimmer um, and they they encouraged me always to dream big and I you know I took out age champion of, of every year for swimming at school and then I took out overall age champion for all sports um, in grade 12, you know, so, and that was probably more so from swimming than the athletics or the, or the running. But so I, it was just, you know, I never, I sort of parked that and never really came back to it. And it wasn't until then understanding what getting a qualifier for the national team. And I was like, Oh, actually there's a team that, that travels internationally and competes, you know, um, you know, at a 24 hour event. And I was like, well, and, the, and I saw the people named on that and I've and I've met them and they're amazing people and I was like oh I could run with these amazing people I it's not it's not imposter syndrome but it was more that I never put myself in that same category I was like these are these amazing people if I nudge in the edge here I should be able to run with these amazing people so you know I just tried to anyway here I am here I am I got named on the team you know a couple of months ago um, because I had two very consistent, qualifiers over the space of 12 months which well it's fantastic isn't it I can't believe it yeah yeah you've got a, a, like an amazing pedigree now and, and a well-deserved space in that team um so okay so linking Kieran Perkins watching that 1500 meters with now stepping into it yourself what what does that mean to you um well, he, he was a long-distance swimmer. Maybe endurance has always been my thing. I don't know. <laughs> um, I can't swim to save myself anymore. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what I lack in talent of running, I make up with my mental fortitude, which is I, I do just get out and get things done and I am consistent and I am disciplined in, you know, making sure I practice my sport and, you know, and I try to, you know, improving all of these little things. So I, you know, I will read books and I will listen to people and I soak up all of this information trying to be better. And, and that's all he ever did. And, you know, he, he, he had so many world records, like he had 11 world records at the end of that. Like that's never going to happen to me, but I, it just inspired me to just keep going. You know, so many times he would come up 0.2 seconds short of a, of a gold medal or, and, you know, like, Oh yeah, it broke my heart. Just always, he was always like just in there or just missing out. And he was like, he never gave up. I remember him going into 1996 Olympics and he almost didn't qualify and they put him in lane eight and he was the underdog for that entire race. And yet he absolutely just, he, he was the only person who run, who swam the 1500 meters in under 15 minutes that year. Like 
Oh yeah, I just see. I, I can. I remember sitting. I remember the day that I was watching that race. Yeah, I don't know. Alive, I don't, you, I, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't translate into what I'm doing now. But I just remember all of those feelings as well. And I, it's. I remember thinking, wow, to be someone who could do something like that and make people proud or to make himself proud, I don't know. Like I run for myself. I don't run for anybody else. I don't talk much. I talk all the time about running, but I don't, you know, I don't push my running onto other people. I'm, I don't, you know, I just I just want to get out and run because I love running. <laughs> Talking about your mindset, um, that, that always wanting to learn and grow, you have had problems in the past with your nutrition and that's a part that you've really opened up to um, new ways of doing things can you tell us how you've kind of gone from from where you were to to fixing it yeah uh, I didn't realize it was such a big problem actually um you know even all the all the time while I was traveling I would always get little bits of gastro here I always grew up thinking I had a cast iron tummy because I eat everything but and it wasn't at all Rob's to me, no way you would get sick no matter which country we're in, we're always sick somewhere. I didn't really ever put that all together, but starting to running, you know, not understanding about nutrition and then learning about nutrition, you know, I've gone from having, using nutrition that is everything encompassed, things like Tarwind and all of those, you know, where they put everything together to then um, actually now I'm, my journey for nutrition in races is absolutely different. Um, it just... I sort of, it got worse and worse. I would start getting upset tummy, you know, fairly early on in the race. And the, the track race in Sydney was probably 12 or 13 hours in and I went regular stops to the loo. Um, and I, I just normalised a lot of that and didn't bother about it. And then, again, it happened to me at Coast Cozy last year. And, again, I just sort of go with the flow. I remember talking to you about it in the middle of the race. We were talking about something else and I was like, well, I'm going to stop here. And you were like, oh, okay. I was like, yeah, don't worry, yeah, whatever. You know, I remember just sort of hmm. flicking it away. It was one of those things I'd troubleshoot. You know, when this happens, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to get overreactive. I'm just going to go with the flow quite literally. You know, and, and, and that's what I did. And it was at the end of that race where my crew said to me, with my sister, and she said to me, mate, enough, en enough is enough. You need to go and sort this out because we just wasted three or four hours in that race of you sitting on the right on the roadside. So you didn't do what you wanted to do at that race, and she was disappointed for me, I guess, because I my training block last year going into Coast Cosy was fantastic. I was the fittest I'd ever been. I was I felt really strong and mentally prepared, and you know, having won the year before. I feel like I could pace that race really well. I knew what to do. And then this, you know, I got, it wasn't a curveball because I was, I knew it would come. So I didn't react to it. But that's when she said to me, you're sort of accepting this, your, your bad behavior from your body. You need to fix it. So I ended up going to, I, I engaged a dietitian and, um, and she stripped my diet back. Basically, she sat and had a good conversation with me for a couple of hours and when I explained everything to her because it's in everyday life as well, not just with running. And so she's like, yeah, she pulled my diet right down and said it's going to be a FODMAP, something's going on, let's just put you back to basics. And and that took months actually because we went right back to basic plain rice and I then, you know, I would have discussions with her, how do I feel for this race? How do I feel for this race? And we went to plain rice and I was allowed to use cordial, wasn't allowed to use tailwind or anything. So I would fuel, I fueled the Canberra race on cordial. That was it. Um, and because that was all I was allowed. 
um, you know, and until we built up what I was allowed to have. And it turns out that uh, using up and go for protein and fueling during races is definitely a no-go because I'm lactose intolerant. So I was actually just making the problem worse. Wow. But, yeah, now I just mostly dairy-free because I've just found it easier rather than just trying to pick and choose what has high and low lactose. And, and I haven't really noticed it. And because I've now been doing it since January, it's sort of just natural. Um, but, yeah, um, I, I did the race in July and did not stop once in 27 hours. So, you know, I've had a full complete turnaround, which is fantastic. This is amazing. And this is where I want to go next. So just for people listening, when Marie and I ran together a, a lot in Costa Cozzi last year, the year before she blitzed past me with a shower cap, but last year, and you would just pull over the side of the road, say, Rob, don't look, and you'd do your business, and then you'd catch up, and then it just became a normal thing, and it happened half a dozen times in the, in the space of probably 20 or 30 Ks. And and so to hear that you've done this race we're about to talk about without having any issues is, is really a huge thing um, for you. We're talking mm-hmm. about bad water. The toughest race in the world is what it's labeled as and um i I know it's something that you had been wanting to qualify for and you definitely earned your place in it can you tell us why you wanted to do bad water and then just tell us the story starting with what it is where it is and then take us through your race um if so Badwater is a is a 135 mile race through the middle of Death Valley National Park in California. Starts at the lowest point in America at 82 um, meters below sea level, so 200 feet or so, um, and then climbs over three ranges up to the top of Mount Whitney Portal Trailhead, which is the highest Mount Whitney is the highest um, point on contiguous New South uh, New South Wales uh, USA. Um, so it's sort of from the bottom to the top, and some some bright spark thought it would be a great thing to do a race. So for forty six years they've been racing it, um, and I, you know what I'd always I'd read a, a ton of books who, who, and or seen a lot of stuff, and people have talked about this race. I never envisaged myself being there doing it, and it's not that I necessarily wanted to do it. I just knew all about it, and then in twenty twenty two, I was following the race on social media, and I watched the. The, the final finisher crossing the finish line. And I it just, so it's Bob Becker. He's 77. He missed the cutoff officially, I think, or whether he made it just in time. But he crawled up the last, like the last 10, the last 10 kilometres of bad water is, is vertical. The last 5Ks, you gain 1.5 vertical kilometres. So it's 1,500 elevation in the last 5K, in the last three mile. And he was on his hands and knees. I remember watching this on social media live and in tears, just thinking how much determination for this person, so regardless of his age, this person to to have that much willpower to crawl, like I oh, unbelievable. And I and I watched him do that and and it's it it spurred something in me and I was like, you know what, I've got to do this race. I, don't, I never wanted to crawl the finish line ever, but I was like, oh, actually, you know what, I think I'm going to research this race and I'm going to work out how to get myself in there. And after I did a fair bit of the research, I realised that only 20 Aussies before me have gone over and started this race. So it's, you know, it's really it's really tough to get into. You jump through a 1,000 hoops, there's lots of qualifying stuff, you know, and because it's, because it's locked down to 100 participants, tens of thousands of people apply, submit their resume, 
and then need to be selected. And um, lucky for me, Coast to Cozzy is what you call like a sister race in the sense that it gets a better, it gets a good tick of approval if you have that race on your resume going into bad water. And because I had it twice with a win, like I remember thinking, I remember saying to Rob, oh, you know, I, I hope I get to do this. This will be amazing. Would you support me if I get in? And he said, yeah, you're not going to not get in. You're going to get in. And I was like, but how can you be so sure? And he said, Marie, for goodness sake, like <laughs> you're going to get in. So And and so for me it was a big surprise. I got up at 4 a.m., waited for them to announce it um, on Facebook Live on in January and uh, I was surprised. Rob was not when I ran back into the room and woke him up at 4.48 or whatever it was. <laughs> Um, he was like, yeah, yeah, I figured I'm going back to sleep. Anyway, so from that point on, I watched every YouTube video. I read every article. I looked at every single piece of data I could about that race. And, you know, it is tough. It is a tough race. Um, so I chose it, one, because it was inspiring to watch someone finish it, but two, because it's so tough and why not try to get in a tough race? Like <laughs> even just getting into the race is tough, let alone doing the race. So. What makes it tough is the fact that it, it can get really, really hot. So obviously Death Valley is is the hottest place on earth with the highest recorded temperature of 56 degrees. Um, we got it higher than that. There's Obviously there's peaks, um, pe you know, people get high and low temperatures in different readings, but the official is 56. But um, the thermals come in the bottom basin where you start the race, the thermals come and go across the road. The I think they say you can't take the temperature X amount of kilometres from the road and when the, the rocks have heated up during the day. So there's all this different data on how you collect the official temperature. But So it's it to get a 59, we got, the car recorded a 59 during the race that they took the photo on the dash for me, which was fantastic. I remember it felt hot at the time just going through that first section. The first 40 or so kilometres is through that bottom basin. Um, but, yeah. It's obviously fleeting temperatures, so they just happen to catch it just prior to 60 degrees, but yeah, it's not this, the official temperature. This is unbelievable to hear. So how do you maintain like your nutrition? How, how are you eating? How are you staying cool in those conditions? So it, I did a lot of work around trying to understand my sweat rate at different temperatures. And uh, in terms of running, I would just put seven or eight layers on with a beanie and a buff and a hat and a raincoat over the top to keep it all, you know, smushy in there. And then I would go <laughs> 30 or 40 Ks and, you know, in the middle of the, always trained in the middle of the day. So always would leave home at 11.30 when it was the hottest or whatever and try and run through to the afternoon, whatever the, whatever it was, I was doing it with multiple layers in the middle of the day. So that was the best I could do coming from winter going into summer over there. Yeah. Um, Nutrition-wise, yeah, I... I was saying before I broke my nutrition up individually because it allows you to understand um, because obviously you need more volume in a place like that to replace, but you don't necessarily need more calories. So you never want to go for a complete nutrition where if, if you, you know, you can't control it as well. So I, I tried to dial it back. It's something you can control, your nutrition. Um, and, you know, being my first race since um, changing my nutrition plan, I wasn't really sure how it was going to go, but I had practiced and practiced and and realized I always go off my nutrition towards the end of a race and and so I was very mindful when that did happen um to I just smashed it back in when I started feeling unwell so my first I remember when I had a, hit a bad point in that race and it was at about it was at the 90 just after the 90 miles so what's that 160 k's 
And I remember feeling really, really bad. And I said to my friend, who's who always does my nutrition, I said to her, how am I going? She said, yeah, you're right on track. You're right where you need to be. And I was like, right, give me 400 calories. Let's go. And I squeezed in two gels and a Sprite. And I walked that off because uh, that did not sit in my tummy very well. But I knew I knew that if I could just get that through that 20 minutes, it would come back. And it did. I came back really well. So it was about, uh, I think, practice, always practice. You know, for me, I get confidence out of if I do the work, so it's it's a little bit archaic in the way that I think, but for me, I get confident if I can do something. So I will believe what I tell myself if I know, because I can't tell myself a lie. So if I do the work and I can see the results, say my training's getting better and my heart rate's getting lower, my pace is getting quicker, they're the things that I that are tangible that I can see. And if I see something like that, even if it's the smallest of difference, I will look at it and I'll, and that builds confidence to me because then I'll be like, well, I know that I can do that and I know that I've done that before, so why can't I do it then? So it's like, and I get more confident the better. The more I practice, the more I, you know, build this confidence in myself, then I, I, I so I'd practiced all of this stuff going into that race, so I was not worried about it. At no point in my race at Badwater did I think this is too hard, did I think this is too hot, my nutrition's not going to work. Every time... I was like, I never even thought about the heat. It, I never muttered a word about the heat because my I had take. I have a pretty vivid imagination, so I imagined it was going to be the hottest I'd ever felt in my entire life. And so when I got there, I was like, yeah, it's hot, but east coast of Australia, I'm coming from hot and humid, so that's a really different hot to hot and dry. It actually was a lot more bearable than I expected. So I was like, right, I'll take that as a win, <laughs> you know. And the nutrition kept going down, and when it didn't go down. I tried something different and so I never entertained any of the bad thoughts that do come until about 200 kilometres. <laughs> and then what happened? Uh, actually, I, I got uh, one of my paces um, came out with me and I, and I kind of, knowing myself really well, I, I knew a strategy that would make it work and it's like I, I constructed a false environment around myself of ego basically so I said to my pacer tell me how far I've come tell me how well I'm doing tell me how strong I look and I said this to him a couple of times over and every time he he would placate that back to me like he, he, he would say Marie you look so strong Marie you're doing so well Marie you're doing and so what I wanted was just to hear these powerful messages over and over because if I heard them enough, I would start to believe them. And I knew they were true, but my my irrational mind was taking over because I was getting fatigued and, you know, um, and I was getting really tired. My pace had dropped off. I was starting to, I was starting to feel quite sick. I had really bad vertigo and I think it was heat related, but we had a, a car section because they had to reroute the the course because of the flooding. So they, they made us drive a certain amount of kilometres where we would pause our watch, um, drive those kilometres to the next one so that you could still finish at the portal and then they would deduct that time. So everyone was given the same amount of time. You like you couldn't cheat. In my mind, I was like, when we get to the car section, that's when I'll use my to, my downtime. I'll shut my eyes, don't talk to me, and I'll get that, that few minutes where I get to sleep while you guys rearrange everything. We just drive and I don't get to do anything. That did not work because my vertigo was so bad. As soon as I sat in the car and sat still, and I laid the chair back. As I started to lay the chair back, I was like bolt upright, trying to vomit because I was I was a bit dizzy in the head. 
And I was, so I said to them, that's it. So I fixated my gaze out the front of the window and I was like, I'm just going to stare out the front of the window you drive. And so that's, so I didn't get the rest that I wanted, but then I was, yeah, I was in this, I was in this terrible spot and, and my pacer, he was fantastic. He, he'd just come out with me and he was, um, they were just doing sort of two mile swaps at that time. So 10 or 15 minutes each because they were getting tired as well. And um, and I and I said to him, just keep telling me all of this stuff. And he did. He just kept saying it. And he had this beautiful, deep, strong voice. And and it took a little bit of time. And after about ten or fifteen minutes, he was due to go off. And I said, and they were the next pace was I had two paces and they were swapping. And the next one went to come across. And I said, no, you're not coming. I'm I'm keeping this one. We're we're staying. We're I'm I'm here. I'm doing this. And so then we did the next section. So he did the back to back double double four miles or whatever it was. And he just kept saying this over and over to me. And it was really interesting because it worked because then I just zoomed and blitzed up to the end of it. Like it was great. It was fantastic. But um, And when I talked to one of the guys after the race and I said to him, you know, what was your favourite part? And he said, my favourite part was actually you guys got out of the car and and you it looked like you were ready to stop. You were, you looked tired. You looked really bad, he said. And then we put, you know, we we put Jamie out with you and all of a sudden you were moving like you were racing and all of this came back and he goes and it was so good and then well, the whole team just, you know, everyone could feel all this energy that started coming out of what was happening, on the, you know, and we all just picked it all back up again and we were back in this. It was really amazing and, it, like, it was such a special time. Both of the guys were, had three paces, had three paces, but and, yeah, sorry, so much love and gratitude for what they did for me but this 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 that there was that section and I knew it was ego driven but I knew that it would it was sort of like a last minute a last straw and I just said to him just keep telling me how amazing I am how far we've come and you know who's watching because if I'm accountable and I know all of these things then I will I will find myself again and I did it was really good it's an amazing story of getting yourself out of another tough hole um, mm. reminds me of Michael Gervais, the, the um, sports psychologist from the US says the only way to build confidence is credible self-talk. And it's exactly what you've just told us then. And uh, that's a fantastic story. I'm so conscious of time. I've only got less than five minutes left, Marie. Um, that race, can you take us to the end of bad water? Because we're all hanging to hear about the climb up Mount Whitney portal. Yeah. Um, actually the last section was, was my favorite after, you know, I, from the last checkpoint up, it's it's three miles and I had three paces and I said to them, you can each do a mile with me, that's it, we've done the work, let's just walk. And and I like I, I realised from that point there was no way I could go around anybody else, no one could go around me. I could see the head torches across the valley. There was no one near me and it was, you know, silence and and quiet. And we, I ended up walking and I was well, pacing up that hill harder and better than I had been for, for the hours before that. Um, and... And Jack, my, uh, we picked up this guy over there, Jack, to be our driver and help us out. And he just said, he said, I've moved from this place of racing and running and, and striving to this place of gratitude where I, I, they got out and I gave them each, like, individual. It wasn't like a, a set thing that I had in my mind, but I, I told them each how important it was for me of why they were there and what they did for me and how, you know, and we it, it was almost like we were all like, I wasn't crying it was but it was emotionful like it was really like I can't believe we've done this together and you know we're going to be bound together for now and it was just this whole place of gratitude we came to the end of that race it was my favorite part at the end as well anyway we crossed the line together 
And the best part about that was making the Kiwi hold the Aussie flag. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it was a journey and it was really special and everybody paid their part. And I just got to do the, the two things that I love doing the most, which is eating and running. Um, and, and it, we, you know, we tried to ring my family and everybody else. You know, it was just really beautiful. I, what I, what I did achieve was third place overall, a third place woman and seventh overall. I was only 12 minutes behind sixth place. I probably could have tried harder and gone around, but I just don't care about that any at this stage. You know, that's room for me to play with if I ever went back. Um, and uh, I, I wanted second. I didn't realise a lady from an earliest um, wave was ahead of us. If we'd have known that, we probably... As a, as a team, as a crew, none of us knew about this other person from an early wave. If we'd have known that, we would have maybe made a move about that. I don't know because, um, as you as you heard, there were some tough spots in the race. Um, I I wanted a, a fast finishing time. I wanted to finish between 26 and 28 hours, and I got 27.49, so I can tick that box as well. And, you know, I, it was it was really enjoyable. It was really great. I would love to go again, but the the you know it's a big effort. It cost me a lot of money to go over there and you know to pay for the crew and everything else. But I, I would love to hope one day I go back. It was amazing. It I was see. amazing. And I anyone else ever wanted to do it, I'm happy to share all my thoughts about it. It's an incredible story. Congratulations on the, the toughest foot race. Hearing 59 degrees Celsius is just off the charts for me and and the way you conduct yourself we have got like a minute left maria there's so many more questions i want to ask you um but i'm going to leave it with this can you give some advice to to newbie ultra runners or someone who's looking to step up to a new distance or challenge himself in a new way yep if you want if you want something do it there's the the sky is limitless you know, and where you think is your limit, it's not your limit. You can do anything you want to do. You just have to have the inkling to find a dream and, and chase it. That's all. Do whatever you want. Just do whatever you want. You are living testament to that. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing the way you do. You do not talk too much. We need this to go on for four episodes. I absolutely adore you and I'm being so grateful to run with you and and be a small part of your journey and i can't wait to see what you do on that track in two weeks time i'll be following all day all night and cheering you on thanks rob thank you so much it's so good to talk to you thanks for listening to the mindset for runners podcast i hope you got something practical and useful out of this podcast or something inspiring to help you get out for your next run if you have a question about Mindset for Runners or athletes in general, please email me at robmason.run at gmail.com and I'll answer your question on an upcoming podcast. And if there's anybody you know who could benefit from the information I share in this podcast, please share it with them. See you next time.